Welcome to the Food for Your Soul podcast, where we apply the Word of God to the hearts of men and women to stoke the fires of your delight in Christ. Last Sunday, our church did a song called Death Was Arrested. See what you think of this verse. Our Savior displayed on a criminal's cross, darkness rejoiced as though heaven had lost. But then Jesus rose with our freedom in hand. That's when death was arrested and my life began. What do you think of that line, darkness rejoiced as though heaven had lost when Jesus is on the cross? Was Satan happy when Jesus died? In, in Revelation 12, John tells the story of the woman and the dragon. You know the story. The woman is Israel. She gives birth to the Messiah. The dragon wants to devour the child. In that story, does the dragon succeed? Does he ever devour the child? Does, he, does John say the dragon devoured the child, but then three days later, God, God turned the tables? No. The dragon failed. Satan's effort to destroy Christ did not succeed. He was not trying to destroy Christ by crucifying Him. He was trying to destroy Christ by preventing the cross. Wasn't that the whole point of all the temptations, trying to get Jesus to bypass the cross? Um, When Peter said, you'll never go to the cross, Jesus, what did Jesus call him? Satan, because whenever he heard that, don't go to the cross, he knew that voice. That was the devil. In Gethsemane, Satan did everything he could so that he could weaken and demoralize Jesus so much that he wouldn't drink the cup, wouldn't go through with it, but it didn't work. Jesus submitted to the arrest, and now here he is at the trial. So Satan throws everything he's got at Jesus. Injustice, Jesus stands firm. False accusations, Jesus doesn't say a word. Unfair condemnation, Jesus stands as strong as ever, boldly proclaims the truth of the gospel that he knows is going to get him killed. This is not looking good for Satan. And it seems like at this point Satan just panics. If you remember last time, the the, the whole Sanhedrin just erupts into a frenzy. They start spitting on Jesus and punching him and beating him like a bunch of crazed gangsters or something, Not, not the Supreme Court. And the whole time... Satan is watching and just, come on, Jesus, bail already. Call those 12 legions of angels and put an end to this. But he, he won't. Jesus stands strong. And so when it looks like this cross thing is going to happen, Jesus is going to go ahead and drink the cup. I don't think Satan was celebrating. I think he's got his hands on his head and he's just shouting, no, 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 this can't be happening. So now what? What happens next in the Revelation story when the dragon fails to destroy the child? Remember what he does? He turns to the church. He goes after the church, right? And that effort to go after the church begins here in verse 66 of John or Mark 14. Satan sees the disaster unfolding in Jesus' trial. He sees what's happening. The cross is almost certainly going to happen now. And so he turns his attention to the courtyard. Ah, look at that. There's Peter by himself. 
If I can't destroy Christ, what if I could destroy the church before it even starts? Jesus said, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, will lose his soul. In Mark 8, clearly Jesus isn't willing to save his life as much as Satan wishes he would. But what about Peter? Would he maybe love his own life? Look at verse 54. Back up to verse 54, and we'll see Peter enter. Peter followed him at a distance. Mark that. Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. So following Jesus can be dangerous. It can be embarrassing. It can be hard. So Peter comes up with this clever new form of discipleship. I'll still follow him, but at a safe distance. That way I won't get caught up in whatever happens to Jesus. Best of both worlds, right? You can still be a follower of Jesus, but without the danger. It's perfect. You can be a Christian without the cross. And that's something that we're all tempted to do. What Peter does here is a temptation we're always faced with all the time when following Jesus gets to be embarrassing or costly in some way. If you follow at a distance, you can identify with Christianity in socially acceptable ways that nobody's going to look down on you. You don't talk about, maybe talk about your church or, you know, my faith is important to me or I'm spiritual or something like that, but steer clear of actually mentioning the name of Jesus or sounding a little kooky. Uh, Sometimes if you follow too close to Jesus, uh, obeying his words, it can cost you. It can cost you money. It can, co- it can cost your job. It costs popularity. It might mean you have to give up forms of entertainment or maybe a relationship or a hobby or drinking practices or whatever. Following Jesus at a distance lets you be a Christian without letting go of any of that stuff, right? Well, let's see how this works out for Peter. Last time we watched Jesus face down the Israeli Supreme Court, now it's Peter's test. Remember the split screen? So we saw Jesus. Now Peter, here it comes. Verse 66. While Peter was below in the courtyard, okay, here it comes. You ready? One of the slave girls of the high priest came by. So not exactly Darth Vader showing up on the scene here. I mean, this is, as far as villains go, hard to think of a less powerful, less intimidating figure in that culture. A slave girl. The strongest of the apostles versus the weakest and lowliest person around. Verse 67, when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. So she, so she notices him and is like, what, what, what? And then she steps a little closer, checks him out. Verse 67, you also were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said. Now, when she calls him a Nazarene, that's not a compliment. Remember Nathaniel, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Didn't have a great reputation. No threat of bodily harm at this point. What's at stake here for Peter is embarrassment. A bunch of military grunts sitting around the fire find out that you hang around with a Nazarene. The kind of jokes that start flying aren't going to be any fun. On the other hand, it's actually quite the opportunity, right? Because what's Peter's job? Jesus said, your job as a disciple is to be my witnesses. That's what he told them their job. You're you're to be my witnesses before governors and kings to testify, right? Well, this isn't exactly a king. It's a slave girl, but 
know, it's kind of like discipleship training wheels. Nice, easy little test. Chance to proclaim his allegiance to Jesus, maybe even preach repentance like he did back in chapter 6, remember? When they went out two by two. Peter could have said, yeah, yeah, I was with him. And let me tell you something about that Nazarene. There was a girl up north about your age. And she got really sick and she died. And her dad was all upset. And that Nazarene you're talking about, he went to her house. And he took her cold, dead hand and said, time to get up, sweetie. And she stood up and came back to life. And he did that to prove that he's able to give eternal life. And he'll give you eternal life if you follow him. Is that what Peter does? Verse 67. You also were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said, but he denied it. I don't know. I don't understand what you're talking about, he said. That sentence is just as awkward in Greek as it is in English. He, he, he already sounds like the lady in Hamlet who doth protest too much. You know, <laughs> It's like the girl's probably thinking, well, I, I had a nerve here. So while Jesus is facing down the Sanhedrin, faces, Peter faces a tiny little training wheels test and just collapses like a shack in a hurricane. That's what happens when you think you can follow Jesus at a distance. It doesn't work because you lose your strength. This is a man who climbed out of a boat in a deadly storm to see if he could walk on water. This is a bold man. He drew on a whole crowd of armed guards and attacked them with a knife this very night. He, he, his courage, Peter's courage in the book of Acts was legendary. He, he, he feared nothing. He never backed down, no matter what they did to him in the book of Acts. He, and here a slave girl threatens to embarrass him, and he just denies the most important thing in his whole life. You can be strong. You can have almost superhuman ability and strength, but the moment you get out of step with Jesus and lag behind him, you're like Samson with a haircut. You lose your strength. So following Jesus at a safe distance is the opposite of safe because you're distancing yourself from the source of your strength. And Satan will exploit your weakness. And he, knew how, he knows how to do that. For Peter, I don't know if for Peter, if he's intimidated by the opposite sex, you know, sometimes that can be hard. Or if it, it, he just wasn't prepared for this kind of test, you know, when, when Jesus said you're going to die, maybe he imagined, you know, facing a big angry crowd or the Sanhedrin or something like that. And he had, he had it all planned out. What he never thought of was some random slave girl coming out of nowhere. And by the time he even realized what's going on, he's already neck deep into his denial. Life comes at you fast, and Satan usually starts small. And he hits you where you're vulnerable. Peter, where was he vulnerable? We know the disciples craved human honor, right? They're arguing about who's the greatest. That was a big thing for them, honor, human honor. Satan knew that. And Satan, if that's a craving you have, you, you need respect from people, Satan can easily manipulate you just by the threat of you losing somebody's approval. Even the approval of total strangers in some cases, like this one. Judas betrayed Jesus for love of money. Peter betrayed Jesus for love of human honor. He just didn't want to be embarrassed. It's called fear of man, and it's very powerful. It can drive a person's life. 
And it's so irrational. Fear of man, so irrational. Ask yourself, if you're an approval junkie, just like, who are these people whose approval I so desperately crave? I mean, are they brilliant people whose judgments are always perfect and right on? And so if they have a bad judgment of me, that means something's wrong. I mean, in this case, Peter cared about the opinions of men who were about to be spitting in the face of Jesus. How, how valuable is their judgment? Why do we care about the judgments of people who are blind and ignorant? Why do you care if a blind person says something about how you look? <laughs> Why do we care? Fear of man is one of the most irrational sins there is. But that's what happens when you follow Jesus at a safe distance. People become really big, and Jesus becomes really small, and fear of man takes over. People are to be loved, not feared. They're to be loved, not feared. And it's only when you're walking close enough to Jesus that His approval means more to you than anybody else's judgment that you're free to love them instead of fearing them or using them to boost your self-worth. So this girl confronts Peter. And Peter pulls the sergeant Schultz. Remember, <laughs> I know nothing, nothing. For the same reason as Sergeant Schultz, he's a coward. Verse 68, I don't know, I don't understand. Uh, it's, like I said, that's awkward, but it's, it's irony. This is just loaded, this whole section is loaded with so much irony. I don't even have time to point it all out, but this is irony. Irony is when words have deeper meaning than the speaker even knows. All through the book of Mark, the problem is always the same thing. Lack of understanding of who Jesus is, right? Isn't that the theme we've just seen throughout the whole book? And now Peter, here's Peter, and he's like, I swear to you, I am totally ignorant about Jesus. Like, I mean, given everything we've seen in Mark, how ironic is this for he, he would say this? He thinks he's lying. In reality, he's actually, what he's saying is truer than he realizes because he really didn't understand Jesus. Otherwise, he wouldn't be denying him. It's impossible to truly understand the glory of Christ and be ashamed to be associated with it. Following at a distance saps your strength, it makes you fear, fear man, and it clouds your understanding of Christ. All right, look at verse 68. The first crowing of the rooster uh, was typically just after midnight, around 12.30. The second crowing of the rooster was around an hour later, about 1.30 in the morning. So the first crowing happened at some point in this, and it, 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 that, that crowing rang out like an alarm clock to wake up sleepy Peter before he went ahead with the denials. Jesus had given him this warning ahead of time. So that's what it should have done, but it didn't. Somewhere in the back of Peter's mind, it registered, right? Because when the second one happened, he knew it was the second one. So he knew the first one happened. So he heard it, it, it but it just didn't make him stop and remember Jesus' words like the second one does. Sleepy Peter slept right through his alarm. Somehow his subconscious just hit snooze. This rooster functions in this incident like a, an audible, external conscience. 
And this is what happens when you try to follow Jesus at a distance. You become deaf to the early pangs of conscience. Your conscience is a gift from God. It's like guardrails to keep you from flying off the path and going off into the ditch. But when, we're, when we lag behind Jesus, uh, that we lose those guardrails and we just go zooming off the road full speed. Nothing to keep us on the path. Following Jesus at a safe distance is the opposite of safe. It strips away your strength, it increases your fear of man, it clouds your understanding, and it dulls your conscience. So Peter tries to escape this scary little girl by leaving the scene. Verse 68, he says, I don't know, I don't understand what you're talking about. He said, and went out into the entryway. So he leaves the fire, goes out into the other area there. But the girl catches up to him there about an hour later. Verse 69, when the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around. Now she's involving other people. This fellow is one of them. Them. Who's them? He's talking about Jesus' followers. Them, like that weirdo young guy who ran away naked in the garden. The rest of that ragtag bunch. He's one of them. The first test was to see whether Peter would associate himself with Jesus. The second test is whether he'll associate himself with Jesus' followers. No mention of Jesus here. It's just them. Verse 70. Again, he denied it. No, I'm not one of them. And it's interesting. Mark is very clear that this counts as one of his three denials of Jesus. Right? Which means disassociating yourself from the church is a denial of Christ. Right? That's all he's doing here is disassociating himself from the followers of Christ. That counts as one of his three denials of Christ. Sometimes we're embarrassed by certain Christians, certain things the church does, and we're tempted to disavow our connection with the church as a whole. If you're talking to somebody that hates the church, right? And he's like, ah, I'm not one of them. I'm not one of them. That's a denial of Christ. We are Christians vertically and horizontally, connected to both the head and the body. And sometimes when people shy away from the church, it's just self-protection. They don't want to be embarrassed. Or other times, um, it's self-protection from the church. It's not about shame. It's about, uh, you know, they've been hurt and now they're gun shy. And those people would say, oh, I would never, I would never try to follow Jesus at a safe distance. But they do attend church at a safe distance, right? They'll keep all the relationships at a really surface level so they don't risk getting hurt again. Maybe they give up on church altogether. But you can't do that and be a Christian. You forsake the body, you forsake Christ. And when you do that, you're easy pickings for the enemy because lone rangers are dead rangers, right? Peter had back in chapter 6, faced hostile crowds and did it just fine. Remember when Jesus sent them out two by two? When he had a partner, he did just fine. And if one of the other disciples had been with him now, in this scene, I think he probably still would have done just fine. He would have been able to handle it. But he went alone and he fell. Following Jesus at a distance weakens you, increases your fear, clouds your understanding, dulls your conscience, and isolates you from the brothers. 
Verse 70, after a little while, those standing, this is now the third test, after a little while, those standing near said to Peter, surely you are one of them, for you're a Galilean. So more people are getting involved now. It's like a pack of wolves that smell blood in the snow, and they're like gathering and circling around Peter. It's, this thing is escalating. And at this point, Peter just goes off. Seventy-one, Verse 71, he began to call down curses and to swear, I don't know this man you're talking about. Now, the NIV assumes that he's calling down curses on himself. Like, may God damn me to hell if I know that man. And that's a possibility. More likely, though, he was actually cursing Christ. I don't know that blankety, blankety, blank, son of a blankety, blank. He, Peter is going to the farthest extreme he can think of to deny Christ. He's denying Christ with everything that's in him. When you put distance between you and Jesus, the result is always more distance. It gets worse. Sin always snowballs. It always spirals into worse sin. Never the other way around, right? You never have a situation where you, you, you start with a huge sin, and the next one's a little smaller, and a little smaller, and a little smaller, until finally you're walking in righteousness. It doesn't work that way, right? It's always the other way. Why? Because sin is relational. And the more damage you do to a relationship, your relationship with God, the farther you drift from Him, the less access to His grace you have, and the, you drift even further. A safe distance from Jesus is a complete oxymoron. Trying to keep yourself safe will always backfire. That's what Jesus meant when He says, He who tries to save His life will lose it. You'll lose what you're trying to save. And that's true of every aspect of life. The aspect of life that Peter is trying to save here was his dignity, right? He's concerned about his dignity. He's trying to save that. He doesn't want to be embarrassed. Well, what happens? He ends up utterly humiliated. We're talking about him now. Save your life and you'll lose it. Save your dignity and you'll lose it. You, feel, you can feel anything in that blank, any aspect of life. Hold on to your money, you'll lose it. Your time, your energy, your job, your family. Anything you try to protect from the dangers of following Jesus, you'll ultimately lose. But if you just lay them on the line and lay them down to follow Jesus, you'll gain everything. You'll gain life. Our final point about following Jesus at a safe distance is it always ends in disaster. Look how it ended for Peter. Here comes the pain, verse 72. Immediately, the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. What's more painful in life? than the agony of regret. And this isn't just mild regret of some common stumble. This is a I just ruined my life moment, right? I don't know if you've ever had one of those, but nothing hurts more. I think of that song, that line in that song, He's Alive, you know, about Peter after, the, after the, they find the empty tomb. And he says, when it finally came to choices, I denied I knew his name. Even if he was alive, it wouldn't be the same. 
Luke tells us this was the moment when, after that third denial, when Jesus' eyes locked onto Peter's. So evidently on his way out, they're leading him out. Jesus looks through swollen eyes and dripping blood right into Peter's soul. And Peter suddenly remembers everything. And it says he broke down and wept. Matthew says he went outside and wept bitterly. Peter hears the rooster. He sees Jesus, remembers everything. He's crushed to powder. And they say that each crowing of the rooster goes on for a while, goes on for like three to five minutes. So this rooster just keeps crowing and crowing and crowing, driving that guilt like a spike deeper and deeper into Peter's soul. This had to be the worst pain Peter ever suffered his whole life. That's where following Jesus at a distance will get you. Now, when Jesus looks at Peter, that's a fulfillment of the good shepherd leaving the 99 and going after the one, right? Beautiful image. I mean, how, how many of you have seen a painting of that? And that, you know, it's, it makes for great art. Jesus climbing up out of some dangerous, rugged ravine, carrying this happy little lamb in his arms, and, you know, he's rescuing. Touching, if you see that art. But in real life, the way Jesus rescues the wandering lamb isn't usually that gentle. Jesus calls us back. He doesn't just pick us up. He doesn't, Jesus doesn't go after Peter and throw him over his shoulder in a fireman's carry and get him out of there, right? Because going back to Jesus is meaningless unless it's an act of your will. And when you're moving away from him, the only way back to him is a 180. And 180s of the will are painful. In Peter's case, Jesus rescued him with a look, but it was a look that destroyed him. Destroyed him. I have no doubt that if you ask Peter as an old man, what was the worst moment of your life? No question. I don't think there'd be any question. He'd point to this moment. This is yet another reason why it's so foolish to say, well, I'll just sin now and repent later, ask forgiveness later. The only path back is one of repentance, and repentance is agonizing. And the longer you wander, the more agonizing it is to turn around. And if you say, well, what if I never even get to the point of sorrow and remorse? Well, then you're really in trouble. That's why this is really not something to mess around with. This is the last we'll hear of Peter in the book of Mark, except for one quick reference in chapter 16. Why do you suppose Mark doesn't tell the rest of Peter's story? It's such a great story, the, you know, the repentance and the restoration and everything. Well, it could be that he didn't, doesn't tell it because it's not necessary because he's writing to people who already know the rest of Peter's story. The original readers of Mark, I mean, Mark writes this around the time Peter dies, so... The original readers of Mark have known Peter to be the greatest spiritual leader in the entire worldwide church for as long as they can remember. He was a hero. Like I said, his courage was legendary. His preaching converted thousands. He was the greatest 
example of courage and faithfulness to the Lord anyone ever knew. He was the model of discipleship and courage. They knew the end of Peter's story already. What Mark is showing them is the beginning, which had to have been almost impossible for those people to believe. Everything they knew about Peter, they're like, how can this be the same man? It's shocking because everything Jesus says about Peter are marks of people who are going to hell. The language he uses. Jesus said, if anyone's ashamed of me, I will deny that person before the Father. Peter was ashamed of Jesus. 1 John 2.23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. No one. 2 Timothy 2.12, if we deny him, he will deny us. Peter denied Jesus. Jesus said, whoever tries to save his life will lose his soul. Peter tried to save his own life. Revelation 12.11 says, true believers are those people who did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Peter loved his life so much, he wouldn't even suffer embarrassment for Christ. James 5.12 says, Above all, my brothers, do not swear, or you will be condemned. Peter swears that he doesn't even know Jesus. All this language, the same language used to describe people who are going to hell, is used also to describe Peter, what he did. Why? The readers of Mark know that Peter's not going to hell. They knew he wasn't going to hell. He was a model disciple. So when describing his failures, why not use different words? Why wouldn't Mark use some words like associated with stumbling and failing instead of used of unbelievers who are going to hell? Why use this language? I think it's to teach us a very, very important truth about repentance. When he says... Peter broke down and wept. Mark is, you know how Mark is. He packs a lot into a little bit. And so he, that's shorthand for the whole repentance process and all the restoration and all that. He just packs it into one little statement. But the point is this. All the descriptions you read in the Bible of people who are going to hell, those descriptions apply only to the unrepentant. Okay? Very important principle to understand. When the book of Revelation says, all liars are thrown into the lake of fire, it's talking about unrepentant liars. When 1 John says, if you hate your brother, you're condemned. That's unrepentant hatred of your brother. You are not defined by your sin unless it's unrepentant sin. If you tell a lie, you're not a liar unless it's an unrepentant lie. If you commit murder, you're not a murderer if you repent. When the Bible talks about murderers, adulterers, hypocrites, whatever label, any sin label, you can always pencil in the word unrepentant before that word, before that label. Because if you repent, that label does not apply. Just think of Acts 3, Peter's sermon in Acts 3. What did he do to, to condemn those people he's preaching to? What did he say? Acts 3.14, you denied the holy and righteous one. <laughs> Is that the pot calling the kettle black? He's famous for denying Christ. No, it's not the pot calling the kettle black because Peter repented. And that's all he was asking that crowd to do. Is join him in his repentance, right? Not only did Peter not go to hell, he wasn't even disqualified from leadership and ministry. Jesus restored him to pastoral ministry days later. 
That's great news for us, right? Because every one of us in this room has had many times when we've loved our own life so much that we didn't do what we knew God wanted us to do. Because we were trying to hold on to something in this life. We've all followed Jesus at a distance. We've all done it. But there's hope. There's hope as long as there's still something in you capable of hearing that second rooster. Peter was spiritually too sleepy to notice the first rooster. That's bad. But he was at least alert enough to hear the second one. Right? I mean, he did hear the second one. If he'd been completely asleep, like Judas, he wouldn't even have heard that second one. He would have just gone right on. But he turned around. How does that happen? How does it, how does it happen when you hear the rooster and, and get turned around? What was it that turned Peter around even when he was so determined in his sin? Like he's cursing, swearing, he's doing everything he can. What turned him around? Verse 72, then Peter, what? Remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him, and he broke down and wept. It happens. You turn when you remember. When you remember the word. And not just in the sense of recalling the verbiage, but in the sense of letting the force of those words have their intended effect on your heart. You ever thought about the fact that Jesus looked would have been wasted on Peter if Peter hadn't also been looking at him. Right? He wouldn't even have seen it. He wouldn't have known. As bad as Peter's fall was, there was still something inside Peter that was capable of being awakened. Joel 2.12 says, Rend your hearts, not your garments. In this scene, the high priest tore his garments, right? Peter rends his heart. And he was forgiven and restored. Let me just close with this. Why are we tempted to follow Jesus at a distance? It's because there's moments when following close to Christ seems to threaten our happiness. That's always what it boils down to. In some way, we think, if I obey here, ah, it's going to steal my happiness. That's why we're afraid. We're afraid of obedience. That's what makes us follow Jesus at a distance. We're afraid of obedience. Now, Remember when Jesus ended the Sermon on the Mount by talking about the, the, the man who builds his house on the rock and the one who builds his house on the sand? Whenever I ask people, what does the rock represent and what does the sand represent? Inevitably, they'll say, oh, the rock, that's Christ and his word. The sand, that's like false religion or error or you know, human wisdom or something like that. It's not true. You want to know what the sand is? The sand is the Word of God. The sand is the Word of God. It's what Jesus said, Matthew 7, 26. Listen, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. Building your house on sand is not building your life on the foundation of falsehood. That's not what he's talking about. Building your house on sand is hearing the truth of Christ's words and just simply not putting them into practice. That's the sand. 
both the rock guy and the sand guy hear exactly the same material, the Word of Christ. The only difference is one of them puts it into practice, he obeys, the other one doesn't. That's the rock and the sand. Building on the rock is hearing and doing, obeying. And that's what will keep you safe from the storm. When the storm hits, the guy on the rock is okay, the guy in the sand isn't. So if you want to be safe from the storm, you build on that rock, right? You obey Christ. That's the only thing that can keep you safe from the storm. So here's the crazy thing. When we're tempted to follow Jesus at a distance, at a safe distance, what are we afraid of? The rock. We're afraid of obedience. We're afraid of the very thing that he gave to keep us safe. In the insanity of our skewed perspective, we're more afraid of the rock than we are of the storm that's threatening us, that the rock's going to save us from. That's why those who try to save their lives will lose everything, because they shy away from the rock. That's their only hope of, of safety. But if we repent of that and lay down every aspect of our lives to follow Christ, we will be safe and we will receive life that's truly life. Oh, Lord God, we, it, it is. It's insanity when we are afraid to obey your way, to follow your way. We think that some sinful path is going to make us happier. And it doesn't. It always ends in disaster. Lord, help us learn this the easy way by watching Peter instead of following in his steps and go, having to go out and weep bitterly. Protect us, Lord, from those subtle little sins that come in out of nowhere, those tests that we didn't see coming and, and catch us off guard. Let us be ready. And let us uh, follow instead of, of Peter's steps in Jesus' steps and stand firm and trust you. I pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Questions? Just thinking about that verse um, where Jesus says, uh, and on this rock. Mm-hmm. But I still, just the natural reading of it, it sure sounds like Jesus is saying, and on you, Peter, I will build a church. Meaning you're the Pope, but yeah, he was one of the apostles, and yeah, they read the book of Acts. Yeah, yeah. Yep. the church got built. So, well, uh, we do have the um, New Testament saying, the epistle saying that the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, right? So we know for a fact, regardless of how you interpret that passage, that the church was built on Peter as, as the foundation. Uh, so um, honestly, I have a hard time seeing the difference because some people will say when Jesus said, you are Peter and on this rock, and, and they're, they're both words mean rock, um, it, did he mean on you, the rock, I'm going to build a church, or on uh, some other rock, the most likely candidate would be what Peter had just confessed. That was right after Peter's great confession. You are the Christ. Who, who do you say I am? You're the Christ, you know. And, um, and it could be on that rock, on that profession, I'm going to build. So um, the reason I say it's hard for me to see the difference is if it means on Peter, the foundation of Peter. It's not literally on his body, right? What, is it? what does it mean that it's built on Peter? It means it's built on his, 
teachings, which is what the rest of the Bible says. Uh, and if it's on his profession of who Christ is, to me that's the same thing. I just I just don't see a big difference. Um, so, yeah, the fact that they confuse the Pope, you know, somebody attaches it to the Pope, and then we think we have to just like resist that and go as far as we can the other way, and um, we don't. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think uh, um, if we have a hard time interpreting it, all we have to do is look in the epistles and see how they interpret it. And they said, yeah, it was, the church was built on the foundation of the apostles. The doctrine, you know. So it's interesting, that story. That took place at Caesarea Philippi, which um, is a big rock edifice and was the headquarters for pagan deities that were um, part of the pantheon of the of the you know the powers of the heavens, and so Jesus travels up there and there. Uh, headquarters for this great profession of him, he's the Christ and the gates of hell will not prevail, you know, and all that. So, yeah, it's really fascinating. Yeah, it sounds defensive, doesn't it? The gates of hell prevail sounds offensive. So we always kind of think of it as offensive. But gates don't, when was the last time you were attacked by a gate? Right? Gates are defensive. And so it's like, uh, yeah, they won't withstand he goes right up to their stronghold and says, you know what? They won't withstand the onslaught. Thank you for listening. We pray these principles from the Word of God are helping you find the peace of God as you draw near to the God of peace. Please remember to pray for this ministry. And remember that we're a crowd-funded ministry, so every gift helps. Just go to treasuringgod.com. Until next time, rejoice in the Lord always and set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God.